There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is Eat Sleep Work Repeat. I'm Bruce Daisley. It's a podcast about making work better. I've, um, <laughs> I've I've set up my microphone in a different room today, and just to give you sort of a peek behind the curtains. Normally, my my microphone is buried into a cupboard full of coats, and that's because I once watched on a YouTube clip by I think the booth junkie Mike Delgado, and he said the if you don't have a studio, then the best way to to get some degree of sound insulation is to put your microphone in a wardrobe. And today I've got it on a table, so I do suspect it might not sound as good. Right, great new podcast today, and it's the first of four episodes about what's coming up next with work. Specifically, that question that pretty much everyone is asking, how can we make work feel like a community again? How can we build workplace cultures when we're not at work together? I was uh, really fortunate to chat to my friend Gary, who runs a, a culture consultancy called Wonder last week. And he was describing something to me that he's running for one organisation that he works with that just sounded extraordinary. They were helping charities during the day. They were getting together. Um, everyone received um, mail mail out pack for them to do something collectively in the evening. Just a good reminder that we, we can do a lot of things and we can put special things on um, even when we're limited about what we can do. I'll, uh, I'll, I've given Wonder... Uh, the the URL for Wonder in the top of the link. If you are interested in them, I just inspired by what they do. Over the next few weeks on the podcast, though, I'm going to be chatting to a lot of people whose job and responsibility is to build communities, and so as a consequence, are going to have the skills to help us understand how we can we can build communities at our work. I'm going to be chatting to Sarah Drinkwater, and she's like just about the the most supreme community builder. She pretty much inspired this whole series of four episodes with her blog post about how every company should be seeking to hire a community manager. I'm going to be chatting to Abadesi Asunsadi, who's just been hired as VP for Global Community and Belonging at Brandwatch, which is just a fabulous title. I was, I've been really inspired by the work that 
Abadesi is doing for a global organization from, from her laptop, from her apartment. I'm chatting to Gillian Richardson, who was the founder of jo- the Joylist, which is like this mega successful way to get strangers together in New York. And as a consequence of that, she's re- really learned firsthand how you can build great communities. She's also the author of Unlonely Planet. And then I'm going to be chatting to Casper Tequil, who is a legend of community building himself, and he's got a fantastic new book, Rituals. Casper was one of the authors of a free PDF a couple of years ago called How We Gather, which has become sort of a massive phenomenon in the community organisations, really. So he's going to be talking about that. So today's first episode is with Sarah Drinkwater, the person who inspired me to do all of this. Sarah's just moved back from the US. When Google wanted to connect into the startup community, Sarah was one of the, the most important people. She led Google Campus in London. She's an angel investor at the investment fund Atomico. So she works building communities there now. She's just got an incredible track record like I say, she was the person who inspired all of this with her original post on Medium. The the interview's really wide-ranging. There's a lot of links that you might hear her mention and you might think, oh, that sounds interesting. And so I've gathered links to everything she said in there. So what you're going to find in these links, you're going to find discussions about QAnon. If you don't know about QAnon, there's some interesting things to listen to. Why? Because we just, we're intrigued about this phenomenon, how QAnon built utterly on a demonstrable fallacy has built this connection and community between individuals who largely felt, I think, ostracized and alienated and lonely. So QAnon tells us some really interesting things. On a more benign front, we talk about the Sunrise Movement, which is this Gen Z youth movement for the planet, which has sprung up in the last few years. If you watch the episode of Queer Eye, where there was a youth organiser, I think in Chicago, she was part of the Sunrise Movement. It's this phenomenon, um, self-organising, ecological movement, targeting young people. We talk about, she talks about Rework, the book by Jason Fried and his and he's co-author at Basecamp. Uh, she mention, mentions the inter-intellect. I'll give you uh, a link to that as well. So there's, there's a whole load of stuff there. Probably the one of the most explosive things for some of the people listening is that Sarah talks about this shocking and spiky idea. As she says it, HR has been captured. HR has fallen. And many workers don't regard HR as a, as a safe custodian of company culture anymore spiky and provocative and there'll definitely be some listeners who disagree with that so we've got a great episode for you here part of a series of three more to follow it if you do enjoy this uh, do sign up for the newsletter which you'll find at eatsleepworkrepeat.com and of course if you do love it always share it here's sarah drinkwater More than anything, I, I, I wanted to pick your brains really because I've been sort of really curious whether there's an intersection between ideas of community and the way we need to reframe the way that we're thinking about work. So I want to go into that step by step. I get, I get the sense in terms of you did this 
really fascinating post on Medium in July. Get the sense that a lot of people who talk about community talk about companies curating communities of maybe their users or of the, the audience they're appealing to. Is, is that the way you saw it? So how, what is a community, in, I guess, would be the first step in that? Yeah, I think so. The reason that I wrote that post is, you know, I've done all kinds of jobs in my life, whether it's been big tech, startups, journalism, I ran a theatre company, I ran a clothing shop. And I have this Twitter following that's kind of quite broad because of that. And, and I follow a lot of broad people too. And I kept observing that all of a sudden Silicon Valley VCs were bandying around this word, you know, talking about like, all the fund, all the investment that we're going to make this year is going to be in community. But their definition of it tends to be quite narrow, it tends to be very much broadcast. You know, things like OnlyFans, I think, is a, is a great example of, or, you know, broadcast TikTok, Discord, where, you know, I would argue that much on Discord is allies with what I call community. I guess, I guess my background, the way that I've always thought about community is groups coming together around a shared interest, either to discuss that interest, design a common action, you know, often, often communities are not things that can be monetized, right? If you think about my mum was always really involved in Meals on Wheels in the area that we grew up in, you know, that's, that's where you get together and you deliver food to your needy neighbors that aren't able to get to the shops. You know, it's a community of helpers serving a community of the needy, but it's a double-sided marketplace in that way. But it's, you know, she's not doing that for money. She's doing it for the kind of status of, of being part of that group, which isn't necessarily public. I think there's definitely a tension between what community is in terms of my mind, at least, and the monetizable communities that exist in the minds of Silicon Valley VCs that have their own communities, of course, but perhaps have less experience of building one from scratch, I guess. So you mentioned sort of communities are often drawn together over a collective identity. Are there any other things that strong communities exhibit? I mean, I think I'm just thinking back to communities I've been part of. Yeah, there's definitely this piece around shared identity. I think really strong communities have a couple of people that are almost self-elected as leaders. They very rarely have one person who's the leader. Great communities tend to have a tiered structure where you have a super users at the top that kind of set the tone and help role model behavior. And then you have a far broader mass of people underneath. It's a little bit like, you know, in the open source community, you have maintainers, contributors, and then people that observe, you know, there's this, there's this tiered structure almost. Mm. I think it's incredibly rare to have one leader because then you're, you know, that's, that tends to be more broadcast on community. And I guess the other, the other thing I would say with any community is people tend to contribute, you know, whether that's commenting, messaging, action, you know, you look at Extinction Rebellion, a lot of that is about physically showing up on the day. You know, you have the people that are running the medical vans, you have the people that are putting together the sort of structure at the intersection to block the police from from taking it down. You know, people all have their part, but it ladders up to a whole together. And they all have this kind of very clear shared outcome of, of driving media attention around climate change. So, so tell me this. So, so one of the things that you said in your post is that you believe that more and more firms will be thinking about head of community. And you mentioned something in passing, which is that community is almost in opposition to scale. Yes. That struck me a little bit that I wonder whether some of the skills that community builders may have acquired might be very relevant for the way that we could try to 
build some sense of culture and some sense, foster some sense of cohesiveness about our firms now that we're distributed? That is there is there some skills and community managers that isn't just about the customer base or yeah, um, or about the, the people who might be interested in our product, but also applying it to the way that we start to think about a distributed workforce and drawing them into something. And I was just I was just interested whether that was specifically in your thinking or whether that was just adjacent to it. Yeah, it's something that, that a few of us have been thinking about for a long time. Like, so in my pre, you know, when I first came into startups, I very much was the only, you know, I was nearly always the first non-technical hire. I was always the only woman. When I first joined Google, I was the first community person they hired outside the US. And a bunch of us kind of ran every year, we would get together and we'd run like a kind of community masterclass. And it would be a way for all of us in community to get together. But we'd also bring in people from other parts of the company as a way of converting them to be our cheerleaders, kind of getting people excited about the work that we did. And it kind of it kind of struck me that so when you look at where companies are right now, HR kind of has been captured, um, particularly in the US. I don't know how it was at Twitter, but in general, I've observed people don't really trust HR. They're very much seen as being on the side of the company. You know, DEI is this brilliant growing function, but often has a huge amount of work to get done. To me, there's kind of often, and I observe this a lot with with startups, there's often a real hole around culture. If you're not lucky enough to have a founder who has the time and the energy and the care to kind of really put time in there, you know, there's a need for there to be somebody who steps up and kind of owns that culture. And in nearly every small company I've worked at, that person is not necessarily someone that has it in their title, but some people are just culture champions. Some people are the people that will remember birthdays and, you know, set the tone and role model and set behaviors. Very often this person is someone charged with some kind of community because the, the same the same skill set you can use with your customer base or the influence base or however you want to define the people that you're serving is also the person that can be very useful internally. But I think it's partly about seniority and vision. Funnily enough, that piece, I just wrote it because it's been a rant I've had in my head for ages and I've had so many companies get in touch because of it. It's really resonated in a way that's kind of delighted and surprised me. But I did a conversation the other day with a bunch of community managers in the US. You know, many of whom are at like Reddit and Comscore and these, these companies that are known for their community. And the main thing I heard in that conversation was people felt undervalued. Even at companies like Reddit where their value is their community, this group feels undervalued, overworked. You know, we still haven't seen enough of the kind of C-level exec who oversees a team rather than oversees the team and does the work at the same time. So I think there's a huge opportunity around uh, an angel investment I've just made is called Progression. And what they do is they help they help um, managers and individuals track their careers. And the, the sort of basic goal of it is to help managers retain and build great teams that have certain shapes. So when you're thinking about skills, you can say, okay, we're really, you know, you can model out the sort of skills of the team and look, okay, we're really weak over here. We need to hire people. But behind that is really this piece around, okay, how does the employee feel they're being, they're being grown and looked after? How is there an open conversation around talent and growth? How is there a team conversation around vision and goals? You know, part of that was the realization that managers don't always have the space to kind of really be intentional about about growth, certainly when they're at a startup and the, the growth is happening really fast. HR does not, you know, so often they're charged with bringing people in and getting rid of people when things have gone wrong. And there was kind of this massive gap in the middle that I, I still think is really interesting. And I would love to find more companies to angel invest in that, in that space, because if we're going to be remote working for the next year, and I think it depends on where you are in the world, how that's going to, what, how that will look. I think there are real opportunities there for companies to be thinking differently about how they engage their employees, how they co-create the company with them, how they think of their stakeholders as being the audiences they serve, their employees, the societies they're based in. You know, I, I love that Mark Benioff definition of, of stakeholder capitalism, although I think given that Airbnb have just let their chief stakeholder officer go, I'm not sure of 
how that's surviving in the pandemic. Getting into the specifics, firstly, when these firms approach you, when the firms talk to you about this, do they have a, a clear idea in mind about how they could use these things. I chatted to Gillian Richardson, yeah. who is like a, a, a supreme culture builder. She's written Unlonely Planet. She's all about getting people, human beings together for shared Love interest. And, and I talked to her about, you know, how firms were starting to think about community as a driving force. And she felt that firms might misappropriate something that is visceral, emotional, human. And, and so I'm just interested when these firms are approaching you, do they have it something in mind that they're, they're thinking about using community to do yeah. with their employees? I would say that there's two types of approaches I've had so far. One has very much been from the kind of Silicon Valley VC audience who are like, how do we invest in communities? How do we do this with authenticity? I think the second group very much has been companies that either have a community community function now they want to expand or companies that are setting up a community function um and given that i have one and a half jobs probably i should take less of these conversations but i find it really fascinating like you know to your point around appropriation i've only ever seen community functions absolutely fail when there's been crazy goals set too small a team hired not enough belief in the company in the, sorry, that's my little boy in the background. <laughs> I think it's one of those labors of love. Like it's, it's, it's a function that does need time and it does need care and consistency. I think these are things that I'm sure Julia said this, but when you're gathering people, both of us have been to those, those group get togethers or those moments that feel really intentional and really lovely. And both of us probably have also been to those ones that feel a bit slapdash. And the difference in feel, which is really intangible, is just there. The old community adage, and I really should look up the source for this at some point, is you have to have three mm. touch points to feel part of something. You know, to feel to feel to feel that you've made a new friend or to feel that your your date might kind of convert into like a relationship or to feel that you're kind of beginning to get to know this community. I think what's interesting about VCs is that, you know, the investment community jumps around a lot, right? Their job is finding the next big thing. And that was part of the impetus for the post is I worry that they're going to put loads of money mm. into these companies that will try to build communities at VC scale with a lot of the conventional growth tactics VC have used, then it won't work. And they'll think, oh, that means communities aren't fundable. Absolutely not. Communities are massively fundable. It's just a matter of we've got to be very thoughtful about kind of scale and we've got to be very thoughtful about timelines. And I think with the second, I think so many companies are having this moment right now where I just reread um, WeWork, uh, Rework from a few years back by the um, Basecamp guys and I haven't read it in, in years. Mm. And so much of that book, I was like, God, so modern, you know, mm. like it felt very fresh. And it made me think about how when they released that in 2010, the idea of fully remote work was super radical. It felt kind of quite sacrilegious. And loads of companies since then have got on board with that and they're distributed all around the world. But many companies just hadn't yet. We're at this moment right now where loads of companies are, are kind of having to at once steady the boat as they manage through a period of incredible uncertainty. They're having to work out how to keep the, the employees that they have happy you know, there are just all these massive crises happening at the same time. And I think, I don't know about your peer group, but a lot of my peer group have been asking themselves questions around, okay, who am I? What am I doing in the world? You know, there's this, and, and maybe this is privilege, right? Because I'm aware that huge parts of the world are, are kind of losing jobs and, and struggling for bills. But, but those of us that are lucky to have work that's really meaningful to us, it's made the meaningfulness of that work or those interests really important. I don't know if you've seen this company called the Inter Intellect, but it's quite interesting. It's um, a new startup founded by Anna Gatt that are in the middle of raising their investment round, if any investors will be listening to this. And um, their thing is that they believe that people need a post-academic, outside-of-work intellectual life. Their whole thing is they run salons where you talk about an idea and the groups that come are not necessarily 
you know, they're, they're very much normal people. They're very much everyday people like you and I that have a particular. So for example, I'm really interested in the history of magic, super weird hobby, but it's, it's really interesting. And I would love to be in a group conversation with people who also are interested in that for us to discuss it. And it's really interesting because a lot of the community that she's building, they're people who have are just curious learners, very distinct day jobs, uh, anything from like bus drivers to professors to advertisers that want to have this thing that is not their day job. And this search for knowledge, this search for kind of wisdom is outside of their day job, but, but that's the thing that holds them together. Not the individual topic itself, but the search for knowledge. And I think that's quite lovely. Yeah, it's really fascinating if you um, if you scratch below the surface into QAnon, and obviously QAnon is... Yes, fascinating, uh, my God. Yeah, probably started by a crackpot. There's a, there's a very good Reply All uh, podcast on it this weekend. Started by a crackpot, no doubt propelled to some extent by the Russian GRU in terms of adding weight to it. But one of the things that, if we start with empathy, to try and understand the condition of the people who were part of QAnon, Often a lot of them are divorced or uh, people of a certain age who are spending a lot of time on, at home on the internet. Yes. And for the first time, a little bit similar to, to that Netflix documentary, Don't Fuck With Cats, if you ever saw that. But for the no. first time, they, they have some sense of belonging because they feel part of a community that responds to them and sin, seems to interact with them and values their opinion. And there's really yeah. fascinating lessons that we can learn from QAnon and yeah. we can learn from sort of these communities of interest. I'm really struck. When, when you talk in your post, you talk about how scale is dehumanizing. I think a lot of firms exactly do that. They sort of, they put almost Soviet style images on the wall. They try and make us um, gather around sort of these unifying thoughts. And it it just struck me as I was thinking, you know, when I read about companies like Automatic who gather their employees together every 13 weeks, every, every 12 weeks in, in normal times. And I thought, okay, I wonder if to, to any extent that's going to be more of a uniting force where, you know, firms maybe get workers together once a month or once every six weeks. And so consequently bringing them together in anything that feels like an authentic te- sense probably could learn some really interesting lessons about these senses of community that, you know, you will have tribes within your organization that people might be associated with, you know, one or two different identity groups or community groups. And it just really struck me that the moment we're living through where people are feeling more disconnected and isolated than ever before, that community might be a really powerful, motivating force that sort of brings people together. That's what I drew from your thing. And I know you were talking more broadly about the communities that that people have created on Twitch or created on, on, on other tech products, but that's what I drew for it really. I think that's a really, so I think there's a couple of things there. One is that it's been really interesting to me that when you look at QAnon and more broadly radicalization, you know, there's been kind of a a lack of, to my mind, research around the community playbook that these organizations have used that has been, you know, because the, the, the toolkit that you use to build community in a good way, and I'm doing inverted commas around that because it's all about subjectivity, although I don't think anyone would argue that QAnon is a good thing, has been used really successfully to, to radicalize people and to build momentum behind a sort of conspiracy theory. You know, I think, yeah, we're absolutely at this moment where people are, are searching for spaces to belong. If you look at, you look at a lot of, a lot of what Trump has been using in the US around like text banking and rallies. And it, it's, it's very much a, a movement building playbook. And I think movements and communities are slightly different in that way. I do think there's something around, um, this goes back to money and I, I get, 
I know it's really annoying to bring it back to that, but when you think about belonging and identity, and particularly this piece around our, our neighbourhoods and our cities and civic participation, which is a particular kind of interest of mine, living in Oakland, that was something that I loved, is that people in general, you know, Oakland is the home of the Black Panthers. There's a Mario Savio's free speech, 1964 at the Berkeley University. You know, there's a really strong history of, of organising and community building in that part of the world. That's one of the reasons why we were kind of curious about the East Bay. And as soon as the lockdown began, people sprung into action. You know, there were mutual aid groups, you know, the protests there were particularly well organized. And it made me realize that if there's a baseline muscle around bringing people together in times of crisis, it makes it a lot easier to build kind of positive community around, okay, how do we look after our neighbors? How do we help people through a difficult time? And in the same way that that you have QAnon kind of bubbling up on the internet, giving people that are feeling overlooked a sense of purpose, I almost wish there were more broader communities that emerge that have a stronger kind of neighborhood intent behind them. I think there's something there's something there that I'm grasping for that I'm not quite not quite getting. But mm. you know, you look at something like Extinction Rebellion, mm. um, and it's super well organized. Like even even despite the fact that it, it being on a bunch of their mailing lists and talking to a bunch of those of people in that in that group, you know, the group that are involved are incredibly diverse. Um, with a very shared vision and strong sense of purpose, you know, very much as a community by anyone's definitions. I don't know. I, I've listened to a lot about QAnon because I'm fascinated. My husband and I are fascinated by it. But I don't know what it feels like to be in those spaces. I, I, I'm guessing a sense of shared discovery, a sense of, oh, there are people like me. You know what I mean? Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, and sort of more benign, I think the Sunrise Movement in the US yes. is really oh, interesting great. as a as a self-organizing community. And I, I connected with them last week to see if they had a, a UK chapter and they don't. But the, um, the way that they immediately distributed their resources to me about how for, for me to build my own chapter, specifically in the US, it was, like, it was really fascinating. You know, like it's, they don't want to be the center of anything. They want to um, empower you to go on and do yes. something. And, and it makes it, it's like, it's, it gives everyone a sense, actually more than anything, a sense of autonomy that they're not waiting for permission on their next act. They can do something. They can be an agent for change. Yeah. And I, I think there's, I mean, this speaks to my day job is that I'm quite interested in, in new forms of power and like the you know, like in our lifetime, I think I think what's interesting about the US and the UK is we have these leaders in charge of our countries that are very much from old power, you know, whether they're Eton or billionaire sons. And at the same time, particularly in the last year, there's been in my day job, our whole interest is in um, helping tech workers step into their power collectively. You know, it's not about any one leader emerging. It's far more about group leadership. And I think there's something really interesting around groups like Justice Democrats, the Sunshine Movement, where it's about decentralizing it's about uh, distributing resources really fast. We funded a lot of um, tech organizing groups in my day job that have exactly the same ethos around, okay, you know, we have one big common goal. Beneath that, we have many different goals. Here are the resources to get it done yourself. You don't need to ask us for any kind of permission. Use our name if it's helpful. If not, don't. And I think that I think that speaks to, you know, particularly if you look at like TikTok activism, which is super interesting. I think there's a lack of understanding of that shift, you know, at the same time as old power is trying to hold on really hard. You also have a lot of new forms of collective soft power emerging that I don't think has really been understood yet. You know, you look at this year and it's just been a series of kind of crazy power shifts that I don't think I can't get my head around because it's almost too much, but so much around shifting from solo leadership to collective leadership to decentralized leadership that I think is fascinating. More from my discussion with Sarah drink water after this when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Now back to my discussion with Sarah Drinkwater. So as a, as a final thought, if firms are sort of navigating this themselves, I'm really taken with your idea that people have recognised that HR has fallen and HR has fallen to, to the company. If, if firms, though, are thinking, right, we recognise now that we've got another year of our teams working remotely, then beyond that, what work looks like is certainly not... It's closer to what um, the Basecamp founders talked about in Rework, this this mix of uh, remote working and office-based working. It's going to be completely different. If firms are sitting there going, okay, well, maybe one solution to this is that we hire someone who starts building an in-house community or maybe a group of communities – is that a good next step? Would you advise them against that? Or if they did that, what would be the brief that they gave to that person? I mean, I think I think the person has to be set up really well for success. I don't know if you know Abadesi Asanadi, but she would be a great person to speak to for this, mm. for this podcast. Yeah, I do. I, She's just doing brand watch, yeah. the VP of Community and Belonging. And I love that title because it explicitly says within her remit is DEI. Within Harima is kind of belonging, which very much is like, how, how do we set the intent and the tone of who we are? How do we make sure that that reflects the people that we're serving? You know, I think, I think there's something about how senior this person is, who they report into, you know, if they report into HR, you know, you might face some of the challenges around trust in, in getting it done that I think others in this role have faced. You know, this role isn't marketing, it isn't policy, it isn't HR. And I, I do think there's a piece around HR should be just tasked with owning hiring people. And when things are broken down, I, I would I would really focus HR in that way. And I really think there's a space for someone to be thinking about community, belonging, intent. And this goes back to kind of values. I think this person ideally would work very closely with the exec team. You see this at board meetings where I guess all the boards I'm on are comparatively small companies, like 10, 15 employees. But there's still a real challenge. You know, often you have this visionary leader in charge who's so busy kind of dealing with customers, so busy hiring that they they don't get enough time in front of the staff. So how does this person add as a conduit? How does this person pulse back up, pulse back down, make sure that values are kind of co-created and, and, and disseminated really well? How does this person help to kind of reframe and, and add stability? 
because, you know, you have to assume in the next year, there's going to be an awful lot of people moving location. People may still move jobs. I've seen an awful lot more moving jobs than I would have assumed this year. I would have assumed that we'd all have hunkered down, but I've had loads mm. of friends jobs, which I think speaks to the privilege of the groups that I'm in. But how does this person kind of really steady the boat in a time that feels really uncertain? Yeah, fascinating. Listen, I'm so thrilled to talk to you and it's uh, been a brilliant discussion. Thank you so much. Yeah. And- oh, thanks. It was really fun. No, no, it was really fun. And I, I, I keep meaning, I will go back and read and listen to some of the other conversations you had because I, I think there's something really interesting around how companies like, if I'm understanding correctly, the audience for this very much is companies looking to kind of study themselves in the next year. And I kind of love that. I think there's not enough good resources that exist for that for that group. Yeah. And, and very much, I think a lot of firms are going to be presented with the second, this last quarter is going to be, I think, incredibly difficult. Uh, economically, morale-wise, and a lot of firms will find themselves thinking the solution to this is we need everyone back in the office the moment a vaccine hits because a return to a a stable equilibrium will feel increasingly appealing. And so to some extent, if we can try to inspire and empower people who aren't going to take the safe path, but are thinking, right, we want to create something that is capturing this moment of disruptive innovation and making our firms better because of it. It seems like a really important catalyst for them to propel themselves to something better. Yeah, I think it's I think it's actually for for those that can see it and for those that have the space to be able to focus on it, I think it's a huge opportunity. Um, you know, you see that like I've been busier as an angel in the last quarter than ever before because I think a certain group are kind of really motivated right now and have the space to be motivated, which is, is in itself obviously kind of a privilege. But yeah, I think there's a there's a piece around we have a chance to completely reimagine kind of how many of us work. And that is a really cool opportunity that I really hope more companies seize on mm. Thank you so much, Sarah. Lovely to chat to you. Welcome back to the UK. Thanks, Bruce. Thank you, Sarah. As I say, there's so much in that. My goodness, we went everywhere in that discussion. And as a consequence of that, you will want to look at those show notes afterwards. Uh, there's links to all of the stuff that we discussed. And you can find more about Sarah. I'll link to her Twitter account as well. Some wonderful stuff coming in the next three or four episodes. And so I do hope you'll stick around and you'll listen to all of them. Thanks for listening. I've been Bruce Leslie. See you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.